Welcome to episode 13 of Coffee and Circuses. This week I'm joined by Patty Baker, Senior Lecturer in Classical and Archaeological Studies here at Kent, and our current Head of Department. Now if you're superstitious, you might question why I chose episode 13 to interview my boss, but fun fact, I had my PhD Viva on Friday the 13th, so technically it's actually quite a lucky number for me at least. So this week we're talking about Patty's current work on Roman gardens and the effect they had on people's health, and how this has re-sparked an interest in her for floral arranging, having once worked in a florist. We also talk about her work on medical care in the Roman army, sensory experience in the Roman world, and how the American education system differs from the British. On another note, if you check out the latest issue of the Journal of Late Antiquity, you'll finally be able to read my article about how the supposed Roman-era church at Colchester is actually another British Mithraeum. Now it's an article I've worked on for a while and I've tried to get out there so I'm happy to finally see it in print. It's controversial but as me and Patty discussed today it's always good to ruffle some feathers. And as always you can listen to and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and Spotify uh, as well as audioboom.com where you can go back through previous episodes. So thanks for joining me and now on to the show. I mean, it was good. I enjoyed it, but yeah, a bit tiring in some respects. Yeah. Did you go back to the States? Not this time, no. We uh, had gone back in November because I gave a talk at my nephew's school during, oh, um, nice. during the Enhancement Week uh, in California. So I saw family then very briefly. And then this year for Christmas, stayed here, went windsurfing a few times. And oh, nice. Took it easy. So, I can imagine that must have been pretty cold. Where'd you go? Where did you go windsurfing? Whitstable. Oh, Whitstable. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. No, winter wetsuits. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I suppose so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so um, and then did some my own work, research, and uh, yeah. had a nice time. Yeah, because you started working on a new project now, haven't yes, you? Yes, I this, have. This, 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 this is the gardens as uh, and their uh, relationship with health yes, in the ancient uh, world. Yeah, so what it is, is um, because I normally would work on ancient medicine, and I looked at me- medical material culture, medical tools, spaces, and then um, about five years ago, I uh, was trying to think, I just completed a book, and was finishing up some other papers and was trying to think of a new project. And I just happened to turn and look at a painting or a hmm. painting of um, the fresco of the garden in Livia's villa at Prima Porta and just thought, how nice. I wonder what it was like to be a Roman in that garden. And then I um, just started to think, well, you know, would they have considered this a healthy space? And that just really has led on to my current research, which is looking at how gardens were experienced, but also how they were healthy. So the the point of how they were experienced is through the senses. So what you would smell, see, hear, taste, and touch. And I'd also been working at that time on a paper on taste and health Mm. and archaeology. So that sort of led into the sensory aspect of this. But um, when I started learning about the philosophy of how the senses worked, Epicureans and Stoics talk about first the atomic atomic system, where if you look at an atomist, an ancient atomist would actually think that everything was made up of tiny, invisible, indivisible particles, and they constantly float through the air. 
and then they touch your eyes or your ears and these atoms are shaped to either go into your eyes or your ears or your mouth or and then when they actually enter they would affect the humerus so it's actually seeing something for example actually it would come physically come into you and then that would affect your balance. So what's a pleasant sight? How would that affect your humors? What are bad sights? How would that make you unhealthy? Or what are pleasant sounds, sounds that are healthy, or unhealthy sounds? So, And then reading further, there's a lot of ancient um, uh, literature, Roman writers, in their letters. For example, Pliny the Elder talks about how he likes to get out of the city. It's unhealthy. It's noisy. He can't think. He's too busy just like we complain about today. He got, he's fortunate enough to have a couple of villas, uh, one by the seaside, one up in the mountains, two by Lake Como. <laughs> yeah. So he could go there, but he talks about them actually being healthy. He speaks about the air being healthy. He talks about how quiet it is and how he's able to both think and um, exercise. So there's a relationship between the body and the mind as well. So. Yeah, I was going to say, because I imagine talking about gardens, I mean, there's yeah, there's like obviously the physically the physical healthy aspect of it in terms of like fresh air and, yeah. and as you say exercise but i guess yeah it does there's a lot of it also that's about mental health as mm-hmm. well yeah gardens being very calm places yeah. i suppose as you're saying like with the image as well mm-hmm. very colorful spaces yes. as well yeah. is there actually has there been much in the way of work on mental health in the ancient world there is it's more more recently yeah there are but mainly what people tend to look at are things like frenetics when when people go mad and what Mm. causes madness so that's what most people have looked at you know how how do you go from a state of balanced mental health right and to one that's imbalanced i'm more interested in how do you maintain that balance and rather than looking at the frenzy or the madness what's calm (laughs) so that that aspect hasn't been looked at as much but there is work on mental health so in the ancient world and a lot of it has to do um with the humors and balance as well because there's so much on humoral balance so if for those who don't know uh the greeks and romans basically believed that the body was made of four humors i'm oversimplifying this but generally it's um phlegm yellow bile black bile and blood and you a healthy person and a healthy mind would have a balance of these any and then if something smells bad it might cause an imbalance or if something's too noisy it could cause an imbalance or that that was still common thought until like the middle ages or later or am i later early modern period and actually we still see it you know you know if you look at alternative medical systems today they they do talk about balance so it's so we still do it on a, uh, a general level, but it's, you know, and there's more now on environmental psychology where they're talking about people going outside and, and just trying to relax and get that balance mm. back. Yeah. But they won't relate it to the humorous, of course. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting, actually, like, when I was teaching around Britain last term and talking about the idea of like, the military community. Mm. And one of those things that you think about, like mentally, obviously, how it, people get bound together in these communities but it's, it's just very interesting, like, the, the effect it had. Like, I don't know. I remember seeing somebody at Track actually do a paper years ago where they were talking about the mentality of soldiers going into battle. And mm. it's one of those things that I suppose most people don't think about, like, just thinking about kind of the mental aspects of it. The ancient world, nobody thinks about a Roman so- soldier perhaps suffering from, like, post-traumatic stress yeah. disorder. But they must have done, surely. Yeah, uh, there's some a- liter- interesting literature by a man named Censorinus. He was a 2nd century Roman writer. 
uh, and he wrote a book about somebody for their birthday. And it, there's this wonderful passage in it where he says, um, people think that Roman soldiers use uh, music to call out um, commands. He goes, but that's not the point. The music is there to keep them focused, keep them active, and keep them from being scared. So he's actually talking about it. So it does talk. It's just one passage. But it's interesting okay. that at least somebody out there recognizes the fact that going into battle is probably scary. And um, Just on a quick side to that, it's very interesting because yeah. I remember in the PGCHE they were talking about things you can do when you put people into groups and seminars and you get yeah. them to talk. Probably one thing that helps is to play music while yeah, they're doing yeah. it. Because it, it means that they, I mean it's slightly different, you know, very different, but it's still interesting how they say that that for one, it means they can't really hear each other in groups so much. Mm-hmm. They can just hear the people around them. But also it makes them feel a little bit more yeah. calmer, I yeah, guess. Yeah. Uh, it's just very interesting how that physically things like music play a role, uh-huh. I guess. I mean, going back to the going back to the sensory stuff that you were saying, because the that that's a that's a massively growing field now, isn't it? I mean, there's yeah. a lot that's being done on, yeah. on the senses now. Yeah. I mean, I know Eleanor Betts does mm-hmm. quite a bit on that yeah, as well. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's striking because I was saying this to students before as well. It's I suppose it's very difficult for us to imagine what mm-hmm. it was like walking through a Roman town or in the Roman world. Yeah. Uh, a while ago, I was reading a biography of Charles Dickens, and the the author was saying in that that if you went back to Dickens' time, like you suddenly you were transported back to like when he was a boy your first reaction when you got there would probably be to throw up mm-hmm. because you would go into like sensory overload from all the, sm- particularly all the smells that yeah. it would just be so alien and so you'd yeah. be so unused to it. And even I suppose like the taste of food and things would have been mm-hmm. radically, radically different. And that would have, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's one of those things that I guess that in the past people just didn't really give much consideration. Do you think sometimes that people think about the Roman world, it, senses in the Roman world, it suffers a little bit perhaps in the past from people doing that whole thing about they think about the Romans as being quite like us so people hadn't taken that step to sort of think actually the experience of being in the Roman world would be quite different like for the senses Yeah, no, I I definitely think that was probably it and um, a lot of this I think developed out of anthropology and then the history of the senses and then, you know, people um, who study the senses from a philosophical perspective and how they work, so it's been growing slowly like that but, the, yeah, it's always hard when you try and put yourself into the past. You, you have to think of all that stuff around you and the different smells. And the, and it's hard to imagine if you're not familiar with that. You know, everything's very sanitized for us. Mm. And, um, but then after a while, you do acclimatize to these things. But the Romans themselves do talk about bad smells. And, you know, it's a cause for disease. It's everywhere. The more you look, uh, there's so much on the senses just... Just in passing, it's mentioned over and over again. And mm. then if you take that to the archaeology, you know, you can see where trash was dumped and that might have a smell. Or you can, um, by looking at the gardens, you can see what was grown there. Would it have a mild or a strong smell? This is, you can try and, and recreate that. Or, or sounds, you know, walls are up. What sort of sounds might they've heard or seen what they would have seen so yeah yeah because it's saying because it links very strongly to people's uh, emotional and mental state mm-hmm. as well Cause particularly like i suppose like sights s- smells etc yeah. they would trigger memories and yeah. emotions as well yeah, so. it's you know it's that yeah it's, it's, it is a really fascinating area uh, and, um, yeah, it just goes in so many different yeah. directions it's like even like when you uh, when you smell something like garum Mm-hmm. and you've never smelled it before, you get hit by that smell, and you're like, yeah. wow. And then you think, like, in some areas, this would be a really common smell. Yeah. As you say, you'd probably acclimatise to it mm-hmm. after a while, but it's just very, yeah, it, yeah. it's striking. Like, 
how how pungent that smell mm-hmm. actually is as well, and how I suppose quite overpowering the level yeah. of particularly smells would have been yeah. in, in the ancient world. Um, yeah. As you say, it's, it's it's so hard to imagine nowadays because we're so sanitized. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine as well that someone like Pliny leaving the city, going to his garden, like yeah. the, if I mean, you can notice nowadays if you go from a city to mm-hmm. I don't know the, the Peak District or somewhere, like the difference in the air quality. Yeah. But I imagine back then it might have been even more notable because, well, I mean, I suppose it's probably slightly different yeah. because we obviously have more pollution nowadays. Uh-huh. But even still, like the because of the sheer volume of kind of smells yeah. that are probably yeah. attacking them, going to somewhere like Kilvilla in the countryside, mm-hmm. it probably would mm-hmm. make them feel a lot more. Kind of, at ease and a lot yeah. more relaxed. Yeah, but also apart from smells, just because we are talking about air quality, another thing they do talk about, this is something um, that's just coming out in the um, World Archaeology, a paper I wrote, was looking at how the Romans understood pure air, because it's, you know, smells definitely come into it and smoke and things, but also movement. How's the air moving? Because if it's stagnant, like stagnant water, it's... Um, it's not doing you any good. So mm. they do talk about poor air is often associated with poor water as well. So where you have stagnant water, you'll have stagnant air, you know, movement. So movement seems to be a big thing in identifying what good air is. Okay. So, you know. Mm. And there are certain colors associated with that as well. So blue, um, uh, whites, um are indicators that there's movement. And then green uh, for green plants is also an indicator of health. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Has there been a lot of work, because obviously now like archaeobotany is a mm-hmm. growing area of study. Do people do, I mean, that stuff tends to cover quite large areas. Do people actually manage to do anything like that on particular gardens? Or yeah. or is uh, rebuilding yeah. like the image of, say, someone like Pliny's garden largely based off what he says in the text? It's a bit of both. Um, there are, um, especially... Uh, for Pompeii, that's where most of the work is being done. It's mainly been done by, it started off by Vilamina Yashemsky, and um, she she was one of the first to actually start looking at what was grown in gardens. Some of it's through the pollen samples, some of it's through um, the uh, carbonized fruits that have survived. And then there are more Italian archaeologists doing that for the area surrounding Pompeii. Pompeii itself, there's some some gardens that have been looked at, but not all of them. It just depends on the you know when they were excavated, the the quality of the excavation and the survival. But there is there's more material coming out. But what's nice about it is what they're finding correlates with what's been written, and also what the, most of the paintings show, unless they're exotic scenes. Okay. So there is a correlation, which is nice. <laughs> it matches up. Yeah. So. How did you how did you come to focus on medicine in the ancient world? Because uh, you you did your thesis, if I'm right, on medical equipment in the army on yeah, the frontiers. Yeah, medical care in the Roman yeah. army and the frontiers. Yeah. Um, the question for that was just everything I read about medical care. I just kept saying, oh, there was this uniform system, and nobody ever said, well, what the evidence was. <laughs> So, um, and um, I just wanted to know what the evidence was. And actually, there isn't enough evidence to support the idea that it was uniform. So I think what I think was going on was people were either, were probably bringing their own medical practices with them because you have units coming from all over the, the empire. So, but there isn't enough evidence to actually say there is this entire uniform system. Mm-hmm. When you look at the inscriptions, 
where the medical tools were came where the medical tools came from so yeah i suppose as well it's a case of things like supply i guess as well of certain things yeah, like yeah. you're not going to have access to yeah. certain materials so you yeah. have to make do with what you've got uh-huh. particularly up on the in the frontier zone yeah exactly um, i mean what sort of what sort of things did you get out of that in terms of like observation wise um well one interesting thing was it seemed to be where most of the evidence was coming from was auxiliary forts from gaul and spain where we can actually identify where which units were stationed the inscriptions and the medical tools were mainly from those units. Then you have units from all over the place, everywhere else, where they have no evidence archaeological. I mean, that could change. Maybe some more mm-hmm. excavations will reveal that. But at the moment, it was really slim. So it's just quite interesting. And then also, I started looking at the deposition of where these tools were found. A lot of them are found. Not all of them, but a, a number were found in places that were either for ritual or burial. So what does that say about okay. understandings about how these tools were used? Are they considered polluted? There's a lot that I took off. And the big <laughs> controversial issue <laughs> that came out of that was my final chapter was um, questioning whether or not we've correctly identified spaces that were identified as Raman hospitals. Because oh, okay. the first one was identified, I think it was 1908, somewhere early 20th century um, in Neuss in Germany and there was one room in a courtyard style building which had 12 medical tools in it and therefore the archaeologist identified that as a hospital yet all the other finds from that building actually make it seem more like uh, it could have either been a barracks or a workshop and there are medical tools scattered throughout the rest of that Roman fortress so any you know if you're going to use that one room and saying, well, here's the hospital. And then other buildings that look similar were then identified as hospitals. But when you start looking at the artifacts that were found in them, most of them could be workshops. Maybe it was a room where a doctor was stationed. I don't know what they were, but I, I just don't think we've identified them. I can't say for sure. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, though, just how something like that, because is that then something where people use that then subsequently as a template for the yeah, building? Yes, yeah. It's always fascinating how those things, you yeah. go back to the original report and suddenly you're like, ah! doesn't quite there are questions over this and but yeah. it just passes into uh, the scholarship and it just yeah. gets used over and over and yeah. how it keeps repeating um did they actually have doctors yeah they do they do um and there we have know that from the inscriptions and there's um some letters but again they're not found in every fortification but technically yeah there was supposed to be medical care for soldiers but my argument is whether or not it was the same type of medical care are they using Greco-Roman medicine, are they bringing their own traditions with them? Um, did everybody want it? Uh, there is sort of this idea that part of um, being a Roman soldier was to withstand the pains, mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, die a good death. <laughs> did doctors in the army have different titles to doctors outside of the army? Or, were they, um, or could you, could somebody go into the army, be a doctor in the army, and then leave the army and be a doctor elsewhere? Or is yeah, it yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and it seems like, well, again, this is just coming from the literature, whether anybody, first of all, for ancient medicine, anybody could say that we're doctor. They don't have, mm. There's no sense of formal training. or. But if you really wanted to study, you could go to, to places which had good libraries. You could um, or be an apprentice. Um and you know, go study with Galen, or you know, hang out with a doctor that was known for um, being good, and then they could teach their students that way. Um, 
And then one of the suggestions was, you know, move around so you can learn about different diseases in different areas. Uh, Galen says go to the army um, because you can, again, learn about different diseases where you may come across injuries due to weapons or whatever. So you could get different training that way. Um, there are most of the titles for doctors you find everywhere, except for there's two that seem specifically military. Uh, Amiles Medicus, which just means doctor, uh, soldier doctor. So we don't know whether that meant it was a soldier and a doctor, or did, was it somebody who was a soldier and then became a doctor? It, it's um, impossible. And the other one's a Medicus Ordinarius, but they're ordinary. Uh, it's a different rank. Okay. So, But it, there aren't too many of those. So. Yeah. Just makes you wonder now, because one of my uh, in, in my thesis, one of my Mithraic initiates from the fourth century, early fourth century probably, is a doctor. Because oh, okay. um, there's like a thing that happens in Gaul where yeah. where the cult becomes increasingly regionalised. Uh-huh. Mithras seems to become increasingly associated with healing there, oh, wow, because the yeah. the temples. I mean, because in the Mithraic narrative, he he he's associated with springs. Yeah. Like, I mean, you get that in a lot of, yeah. of cults, but Mithra are often built close to springs, but mm. in, in Gaul, it's interesting because they get put near to springs or yeah. other natural water sources, but then quite often then subsequently alongside that, you get things like bathhouses yeah. uh, constructed there. And then it seems that you increasingly over time that things like votives to do with illnesses appear near them as mm-hmm. well. And then suddenly yeah, you get this Mithraic community where it's a doctor who's the head of it, yeah. which is quite interesting because that seems to be a very different, the, the the important aspects of the cult in that region were quite different to elsewhere. Oh, no. But I have to go back now and look at actually what yeah, kind of what the title his his title actually yeah. was. Yeah, I'd be curious because I didn't look into the fourth century. So, but no, actually, Gaul's really interesting because this is where we find a lot of medical tools in springs. So, mm, yeah, 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 and um, other objects associated with eye stamping, eye medicines were also found. Um, not all of them, but a lot of them. Most of them are found in Gaul. And a number of them are found in water sources. So, yeah. So there is something in Gaul going on with water and yeah, you know, the other stuff. yeah. Because I suppose like springs is like a big part of that, isn't it? Like yeah. the natural kind. Of, even nowadays, you oh, yeah. drinking spring water is always considered to be yeah. to be good for you. Well, um, going to spring baths, you know, um, go to Baden Baden in Germany is yeah. built actually is built over the Roman baths, but you can still go there for healing. You know, people get. You can go there because it's very relaxing, but also I know people, if they have arthritis or pains, they are actually go and take these baths. It's a wonderful yeah, experience. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. I might do it myself one day. Yeah, do, <laughs> I've never, do I've never, it. I've never actually done it. Oh, really. yeah, it's wonderful. Um, yeah. People say as well, like, Turkish baths, that's be quite nice. Yeah. Different sort of thing, but I've never done that as well. well it's, it's, I mean, the nice thing about the one in Germany there I went to, because it was through my PhD research, it was in the middle of my PhD research, because I did this six-week-long tour along the Rhine and the Danube just visiting museums. And I thought, when I get to Baden-Baden, I am doing this bath. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, you go through like a Roman bath, pretty much. Oh, really? So, you know, warm room, hot room. Um, they have a steam room, which is the natural springs, which isn't Roman. But then you go into the different pools, and then you have to do a cold plunge at the end. Oh, wow. So it, it was very relaxing. I can understand why the Romans did it. <laughs> Perks of the job, eh? Yeah. Um, so, to what extent would you say do, do your do your interests outside of archaeology? Is there any overlap with um, your your actual research? I mean, I know you kind of live by the mantra of kind of like healthy living. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and as you said, like alluding to earlier, you're very active, particularly when it comes to things like sailing. Yeah. I mean, is that something that you kind of that you see any sort of link there between your research? And, um, 
Well, kind of just because I think the idea of getting outside, I, I have to do something physical. I've mm. always been like that. But um, uh, so, yeah, just this whole idea of being outside, it really does clear the mind. And I find that I'm much more able to focus after sailing or at least the day after. It just takes your mind off everything. You have to focus. You're outside. You're in, you know, you're surrounded by the sea, fresh air. And it's physical and mental, yeah, because you have to constantly focus on where other boats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so from that perspective, I can, you know, it sort of links into um, that way. I have an, uh, just a general interest in maritime history, but I would never want to write okay. on it because it's just general and sometimes I don't want to combine work and pleasure. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I mean, it's like in my case, I always, I always find like the Tudors really interesting. I was saying a few weeks ago on the podcast, I think it was when Jay Inge was on, yeah. we were talking about it, and I was saying if I hadn't ended up being a Roman archaeologist, it probably wouldn't Tudor historian would have been the other yeah. way to go. But now it is quite nice because it's like I get to look at that stuff and yeah. read about it, but it is more for, for yeah. pleasure than yeah. it is actually for, for doing any research. I don't have to, I can just, I can listen to what other people have to say about it and be like, okay, and yeah. just agree with it. I don't yeah. have to question it like I do yeah. with, with Roman archaeology. I mean, with the garden stuff, do you, do you actually do much gardening yourself? Um, a... I don't have a garden, but but what I do do is a lot of floral arranging. Okay. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I worked in a florist. Oh, no right. My mum was a florist oh, for okay, years. Yeah. My mom, yeah. Very pleasant job, actually. It smells really nice. <laughs> it's very creative. And uh sort of gotten back into that, actually. And then uh, in October, I went to a, gave a talk at, at a sensory workshop in London, and I was just asked to talk about, well, they wanted me to talk about senses in gardens, but it was more for public. Mm. So actually, I looked at how Romans may have made their flower crowns and made a few and talked about the problems with experimental archaeology when doing that. But it was kind of fun because it was something I liked to do. Yeah. And it actually, I had to think about doing it, um, you know, the Romans wouldn't have had wires or what modern florists do. And it's actually made me um, develop sort of sustainable crowns. So if you're ever mm. interested, need any for <laughs> Start <laughs> the sideline business. <laughs> for Christmas, I had a few um, oh, nice. commissions. So I made all these uh, sustainable garlands, which actually came from trying to figure out how the Romans might have done it. So, oh, okay. so there was a link, but going the other way. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. It's just because like, talking to Ellen, talking to yeah. Joe Stoner as well, where they where they're looking at stuff to do particularly with material culture mm-hmm. and use and reuse of it, how that's that's led to them having developed interest. Joe was saying last week that she's really developed a stronger interest now in craft yeah. because of it. It's, it's interesting how that stuff feeds over. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I actually worked part-time in a garden centre for years. Oh, okay. yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I still know nothing about plants. I mean, I know odd things, bits mm-hmm. and pieces. I was mainly just on the till. Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was nice. I mean, it was a nice place. It was a nice place to work, though, yeah. because you could be outside quite mm-hmm. a lot. And it was a little bit... I mean, where I live is, is, as I was saying earlier, it's kind of on the border of northwest Kent, southeast London. Okay. But it's in a weird little space where it's quite green. It's mm-hmm. in the bottom of Shooter's Hill in Welling. If anybody even knows where that is, which yeah. most people won't, but still. And there used to be, well, there was actually a farm next door. Yeah. Uh, there used to be donkey, the donkeys, but they, oh. they removed the donkeys and put them elsewhere. They turned it into a equestrian centre for the, um, for the Olympics, but okay. still horses there. But, but any case, it was, it was a nice place to work yeah. because it was, particularly in the summer, because you mm-hmm. were, you were outside and you were, you know, you get to walk around, you get to be active. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, it's, I'd prefer, I prefer doing that sometimes. I mean, you know, like, it's like, it's kind of what we're saying, like academia. It's like, I like doing research and teaching, but there are times where you're like, I just want to get outside. Yeah. You know, that, and that's the good thing about archaeology, I guess, is yeah. it enables you to be outside. Actually, that was one of the reasons I wanted to be an archaeologist because 
as I said, I need to exercise. I need to be outside. Yeah. And um, it was I have a love for history growing up, but the idea of just sitting inside all the time, I think I would go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that was one of the appeals of becoming, you know, doing archaeology in the summer or you know over the weekends or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a similar thing because I grew up doing a lot of things like scouts. Okay. Um, so archaeology was that kind of intersection between mm-hmm. being outside a lot and liking history yeah <laughs> it was you know i like reading about history and, yeah. and watching films or whatever about it but yeah i like to actually do something with it that's quite active as well mm-hmm. and, and being outside because you you've been on you've worked on a number of excavations yeah, yeah, i mean you yeah. i know you were in the in the swiss uh with switzerland with yeah. mutual mutual friends uh-huh. of ours yeah, with, yeah. Uh, neil christie and yeah, uh Chantel. Chantel. how was that actually how that was, was fun it, it's unfortunately never worked out it was actually it came about because i did a teaching exchange at virginia tech and they have a study center in switzerland lovely <laughs> nice, <laughs> yeah. nice italian villa and um glenn view the person i did the exchange with wanted to carry on trying to um do some uh, work with Kent, and we tried to get some kind of uh, program mm-hmm. running there. And I knew Chantal knows the area and loves it, and uh, so I thought of her. And then we tried to do we did a little bit of this church survey, but we just couldn't get the funding. Mm. Or really, what we needed to do was find Swiss um, collaborators, and we didn't. No yeah. one was interested. So it, I imagine they'd have a lot of money as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah no. but they kept saying they didn't, and um, okay. but they really want collaboration and everybody we approached just kept saying no yeah. so it didn't work out in the end but we did do one season <laughs> so, yeah. so that was fun i've worked um in near lake garda with oh, Daniel, nice. uh, with an italian group for a couple of years working on a hilltop multi-period hilltop site and took a few camp students there um, I've worked on prehistoric sites. I did a Roman field system in 2002 in Avebury with some Kent students. Um, prior to that, um, I worked on Hadrian's Wall, the South Shields. Mm. Uh, so is that part of the Newcastle connection? Yeah, yeah that yeah. was all Newcastle. Actually, that's what brought me to Newcastle. I um, was doing my master's at Florida State, and uh, because it was archaeology, I had to go abroad and work on a Roman or a Greek site. And I had started to develop an interest in um, life in the Roman army, which nobody does in America or didn't at the time. Very few people do it now. There's a small group trying to, to learn about the mm. provinces. So I was the odd one out where I decided, well, I'll go to Britain and, and work on a Roman fort where everybody else was going to yeah, study yeah. Greece and Italy. <laughs> But um, I started working at South Shields and um, did that. And then I thought, well, if I really wanted to study this, I can't stay in the States. So that's so it was working at the site. So I saw the university. There were people at the time. And when I went to Newcastle, I did a second master's in Roman frontier studies, again, because we just weren't taught that. I was teaching myself along with doing uh, classical archaeology, languages and, lit- and history um, at Florida, and then um, did a second master's in Newcastle just to really get the background in the frontiers, and then decided um, I had an interest in ancient medicine. Just I uh, had read a few books and thought that's interesting. Came up with this question about the army, and it turned out that the year um, I decided to do my PhD, although I started out in archaeology. My first supervisor died. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> yeah. And then um, they gave me somebody as a temporary measure. But 
then uh, there was somebody who had just been hired in classics uh, who was working on ancient medicine. So it's just uh, oh, well, Philip yeah. van der Rijk, who is now Humboldt professor in Berlin. But it was just like, he's the obvious person. Uh, even though he wasn't an archaeologist, it was really good to have somebody who looked at the literature who, and it, it just came together perfectly. Mm. So it was just that, you know, where everything has its time and place. It was, yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, my first question about that is how was it acclimatising to the accent in Newcastle in town? I still don't know. I, I, I went up there a few years ago to do some, to do some research to go look at the Mithraea. Yeah. And I just remember being at McDonald's in Newcastle, and the, I actually had to ask the person three times what they were saying yeah. to me. I, I find it harder sometimes to understand people from the north than I do from, from other countries. It yeah. sounds really bad. But, no, uh, it, it's funny. I love the accent, but uh, it is difficult if you know, I haven't grown up with it. And some, uh, you know, I was getting better around it, but some people have very strong accents. And I, I love listening to it, but yeah. I don't know what some of them are saying. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> How is it? How is it as well, like, in terms of making that transition from the States to the UK? I mean, what are some of the notable differences? I think you're the first, because you're the first person I think I've spoken to for the podcast Mm -hmm. that's really come from a different, well, basically from a different country into the UK system. So, I mean, is, I mean, you mentioned earlier that, that for one thing in the States that people aren't there's not a tremendous amount of scholarship that focuses on the Roman army, mm. but are there other things at all that are quite notable? And Oh, yeah. I mean, well, let's start off. My undergraduate degree, I'll start with that. It was quite different from undergraduate degrees here. First of all, it's four years. Mm. Um, and then um, it's... Although my BA was in anthropology because I was, I was curious about archaeology. So in America, you do anthropology unless you do a classical archaeology, which is quite interesting because I didn't realize that when I was applying for universities. But I think that was a good thing not to realize. So by doing archaeology under anthropology, it's really opened my eyes up to theoretical applications, different types of questions, different ways of thinking. And then I can apply that to the traditional classical archaeology, which was at the time, it's starting to change now, um, uh, very art-based, you know, mm. sculpture and, and, and that. So it was much more art historical than it was social anthropology. So, but anyway, going back, the my BA was anthropology with a history minor, and then I did classical languages, but it was an, a liberal arts education. So I had to do sciences, math, languages, uh, other humanities, other social sciences. So it was, yeah, broad. We even had to do physical education. Oh, wow. Which was, again, <laughs> useful because it's, you know, mind and body. And, yeah. and um, so that was, and also what I think most of my students would hate here, I could not graduate without doing a public speaking class. Oh, wow, yeah. Everybody, and they still have it as a requirement. I always check. I've, I've spoken to people about this before, and people have raised this point. That I think that that's not a bad thing to have, mm-hmm. though, because I think that is a very important aspect. It's something very important to learn. Yes. And I think there is a very notable, and I think everybody can test, anybody who's been to a conference where you have people from the UK and people from the States talking, there is there is notable differences yes. that exist. And I think that that is, as you say, partly stems from the fact that in the States people have to do public speaking yeah. as uh, as part of their, yeah, no. part of their tuition. And, and over here... 
we don't really we don't put so much onus on that mm -hmm. which um yeah is yeah it does it does lead to a notable contrast is yeah I, I, yeah it, i don't i don't would be very popular but i, yeah, <laughs> I, I think mean, it wasn't no one wanted to yeah. do it but i'm you know and I, I actually held out to the very last semester to do it which was you know not probably not the best thing but i was really scared um and but then i had a fantastic teacher and it was such a nice class and everybody was supportive of each other i think because we were all frightened to death mm -hmm. that we had to do this and the and you know you would stand up there you'd give your two minute talk then a five minute talk then your 10 minute final talk and then little talks in between and the teacher would tell you right then and there in front of everybody you would get constructive criticism or you speak too quickly i know i always still do that but not as bad as i used to and you know, I could give a whole talk without breathing. <laughs> but, you know, it was things like that. And then we would just make a joke out of it. And it was very, it was nice. It was it was fine. In fact, it was one of my favorite classes in the end. So. Yeah. It's fascinating as well, because when you study the ancient world, you're studying people where rhetoric was so so important. <laughs> public speaking was a public aspect of it. And then yeah. you get, so it's like you could say like the sensory experience of, of sound, yes, uh, yeah. projecting sound and also hearing sound. Uh, that fades into it. Uh, any other, any other kind of differences? At all? Uh, yeah. So the liberal arts thing is big. Um, that was one that uh, is massively different. Then when we start to really specialise in our MAs, MAs are there two to three years because you are specialising and and they are training you to be an academic big time. Um, so that was pretty hardcore actually. The masters was hard, and we had to do we had to pass. Not only did I have to pass Greek and Latin exams at master's level, you know, postgraduate level, I had to then um, had to pass two foreign language exams, written exams, to, to show that I could read. So I had to read did German and French. And you cannot graduate without those, which so it takes longer to do that. Wow. Yes, yeah, so that's I think that's, that is a big difference because I've mm -hmm. said this before as well. In in Britain, we. We obviously don't really tend to promote here much in terms of learning other languages. Yes. I mean, when you go to university, like if you come to Kent, you can learn Greek and Latin, mm -hmm. and you know you can do more languages. But at school, I mean, I did, I did French at school all the way through. We did German for a few years yeah. and I did Latin as well. But um, there is that general apathy from mm -hmm. every, well, not everybody, but quite a lot of people about learning other languages because you just everyone's going to speak English anyway. Yeah. And, and then you get as you get starting to get older, you're like, oh, yeah, this sort of, you know, you, then you're suddenly having to backtrack and starting to teach yourself. Yeah. And yeah. you're like, oh man, I, I wish this had, you know, like German. I wish I'd carried on doing German mm -hmm. all the way through school and. Because then I would have saved myself spending the last few years spending like spending an evening on things like Duolingo trying to yeah. like improve my German. But yeah. um, no, it was I'm really glad I did it because I had so much German to read, and then I had to read some Dutch as well. And because I knew the German grammar, you can sort of and then just getting a teach yourself Dutch kind of book, it it wasn't mm. too bad. You know, it was pretty easy to make that transition. So it, it was. Again, very useful. I did since I didn't do my PhD in the states. I did it here, but there are differences with that because you have to do exams and mm. you do some coursework. So it takes longer to do the PhD anyway, and then uh, so you have to go through more training, exams, and then you do your PhD, mm. your actual thesis. So it's a lot more intense in the state yeah. overall. Like a lot more intense. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's intensive, but I mean, yeah, yeah. there's a lot more almost checkpoints that you have to reach. In the yeah, states, and it takes uh, yeah. that length of time to do so as well. Yeah, I um, mean, it does take a lot longer. 
But I guess they're very rewarding at the end of it all. Yeah, you, you it's a good learn. job. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've got a tremendous amount out of it, at least, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Case. So, I mean, in terms of the actual study of, of the ancient world and mm-hmm. slash archaeology, what do you think the, the subject could do to, I don't know, I think improve itself is the wrong word, but, yeah. you know, where, where could it go in future? What sort of avenues do you um, think? Would be? Well, there's a lot. I definitely, um, there's much more that can be done with diversity. It's a diversity inclusivity is such a huge topic now. And, you know, everybody has to build it into their work programs. But I think, particularly for classics and what's just recently happened at the mm. AIA, if you're meeting, which I'm sure you've heard about. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sorry, we're going, going down on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Um, it was a horrible thing that happened, but in a way, it needed to be exposed because if you look at traditional classics and classical archaeology, it's a very elitist, white, male-based area of study. And, it was, you know, the ancient world wasn't like that. It was a very diverse society, lots of different large social strata, women were there, uh, children, people with disabilities. This It's starting to be explored, but I think there's a lot more that could be done with that and then actually be taught at school level. And, uh, you know, these larger classics conferences or history conferences or whatever should um, expose the fact, you know, make that more public as mm. well. But, you know, the ancient world was not just men marching around in their military uniforms or wearing yeah. togas. So, yeah, so there's, I mean, there is a lot more work has been done on women and gender, of course, but still more could be said or made public. I think it's the idea of if people are studying this stuff, get it out there. Yeah, Let yeah. the schools know. Because you know. once people realize how diverse the world is and was yeah i think that's a good thing it could do um in terms of environmental sustainability <laughs> romans made mistakes um as mm. well you know but there's there's something that could be done with that yeah. her a few weeks ago on the podcast talking to sadie watson from mola and sadie was saying about how she was in the states and she gave a talk to a group of school kids mm-hmm. uh and it was kind of in the southern half like southern i can't remember exactly where she was uh, but you know kind of with that kind of history of se- segregation very mm-hmm. much apparent and um you know talking about people like septimius severus coming yeah. out of north africa yeah uh, and ruling the roman world like the kids were just like what uh-huh. like yeah. you know it's 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 incredible like the i mean i suppose in some respect almost stuff like that even when you're in the academic bubble you take for granted yeah and you don't realize the the impact that it could have on other people mm-hmm. and they have comes to that realization that yeah. the ancient world isn't isn't the way they've seen it in mm-hmm. obviously like through particularly things like sword and sandal epics and the way yeah. it's presented in that that it's you know as you say a much more diverse place and mm-hmm. there's i mean i, I said that that i was finding fascinating that you have with him at one point a uh, an emperor from North Africa whose sons are half Syrian. Yeah, you know it's that sort of thing. Particularly in in kind of modern like mm-hmm. world with the current situation, I think is is a very interesting story to yeah. to tell. I think that's something that could be done. I mean, I, when I told you I was just speaking at my nephew's school, I was talking to eleven and twelve year olds about ancient medicine. It's very basic. But what I could do with them was just talk about, um, you know, children's medicine in the ancient world, and that got them fascinated. And so, and they could think about differences that way. And I was like, if you were a boy, if you were a girl, this was, you know, how they were thought about. So it gets them thinking about gender roles differently. And mm. even at that age, just what are these little differences? Yeah. The cogs start turning. In yeah, yeah, no, you can see they yeah. ask great questions. All kids yeah. are, fun, you know, yeah. and they'll carry that stuff with them yeah. for, for a long yeah, time. Yeah. It will really have a big impact on them. Mm. 
you've you've got some stuff that's come out recently, publish wise. Mm-hmm. Where can people find find that stuff? Uh, the most recent should be out if soon is in World Archaeology. There's a, a an edition on medicine, uh, archaeology and medicine. Uh, there will be a paper uh, book coming out. Um, Looking at, well, it's just more of a general book on medical tools. I, I just studied an unpublished set of medical objects, but then explained all the different things you can do. And I got to use the XRF machine on them as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> so that, that's, that was something that you don't get to do on medical tools, which is quite nice. <laughs> when's, it, when, when's, when's that book coming? I think it'll be at the end of the year. It's oh, okay. just, it's with, um, it's published by Lance Totalon, uh, who's a specialist in ancient medicine as well. So that, that's coming out. They're the two most recent mm. things. And, um, and otherwise, it's working on this garden book. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And uh, setting up a sideline business in Florida. In Florestry, yeah. yeah. Florestry as well. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Based on Roman designs. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well. It sells, it sells. <laughs> cool. Right. Okay. Thank you very much. Sure. Thank you. That was fun. Thanks for listening to Copy and Circuses. The Roman poet Juvenal once said, people will be content as long as you give them bread and circuses. But if I'm going to talk to somebody, I'd rather do it over coffee than bread. You can find me, David Walsh, on Twitter at D underscore J underscore Walsh or contact me about the show at coffeeandcircuses at gmail.com. That's with a full and. Don't forget, you can subscribe, rate and review the show on iTunes and Spotify. Big thank you to the Institute of Classical Studies who support the podcast via one of their public engagement grants. The theme tune is La Cajora by Roll Music, available for download at freemusicarchive.org. And in the background right now, you can hear an 8-bit version of the Indiana Jones theme by Miles Metal, originally by John Williams, but you all know that, which is available on YouTube. Thanks again for listening, and remember, it's better to be a gladiator than a Diocletian.